Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Uh, and as we do that, I want you to consider how you use Scripture. How do we come to the minor prophets? Especially when you come to a prophet like Joel, and you read it. If you don't understand the context, you don't know what's going on, um, it, it, it'll get misused easily, as most prophecy does. Taken out of context, you've probably seen it. Uh, someone said this happened and this happened and it's well it's because they passed this law or they let this casino move in here and that's why we had a tornado and, and all of those things and you wonder how does that happen? Well part of it is a misunderstanding of the nature of God's prophecy, the place the prophets play in redemptive history. So we come to the prophet Joel, and he's one we don't know a whole lot about. We're not even quite sure about when he lived. There's a few markers there that, that point at the temple and what was going on, and the temple sacrifices were then stopped, but we don't hear about the reign of the different kings. Um, but the amazing thing uh, that we get in Joel is God gives him a prophetic message about the future, and he gets to see it happen. Uh, I don't know if you understand how, how amazing that would be as a preacher, right? If, if you came to me and you had doubts about Christ, and I said, well, I understand your doubts, but tomorrow, when you go to your mailbox, you're going to get a surprise refund from the IRS, and it happens, and you get the refund, and you're like, I believe in Jesus now. <laughs> I don't know if you wish that maybe Blake had Joel Powers to tell you the hardship that you're facing, the pandemic, if we could have called it before it happened, right? Wouldn't that just change your mindset? You'd think, I, I, you know, this, this person has proved themselves. And such was the role of the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, I, I often will have, maybe not often, but have, have people that come to us with various difficult life circumstances, really difficult life circumstances. Remember a few years back, someone came and they, they laid out this story and they, they looked at me and said, what should we do? We'll do what you tell us to do. And I didn't know. I remember thinking how, how interesting it is for a person to say, give us direction, uh, we'll do what you say, and for me to say, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to go and talk to other people, get some counsel, get some prayer, because I really don't know. Here, God gives Joel a vision of what's coming and what it means and how they should respond. Are these airplanes? Good, good. Yeah. 
and, and so as we talk about prophecy, before we read this prophecy, there's, there's several types of prophecy, but, but an Old Testament prophet uh, and, and Jesus himself would have these short-term prophecies, and those short-term prophecies would then show that the prophet spoke in the name of God, he had the authority of God, and then he would give long-term prophecies, right? Jesus did the exact same thing. Remember when he went to have Passover? He says to his disciples, you're going to find this man, right? How random is this? You're going to find some man, and you're going to say, the teacher says that we're eating Passover at your house, right? So 13 of these guys are going to show up. Somehow God was working beforehand. So this guy, you can imagine going to his wife, we need enough for 13 people. Why? Well, God told me that, that 13 people are going to show up for Passover dinner. It happens. So you see it all throughout the scriptures. You see it with uh, Saul. Saul, you're going to find these people. You're going to do this. You're going to prophesy. And, and then, then, then you'll know. Um, so there's, there's those short-term prophecies. There's also um, conditional prophecies. And it's very important we grab that concept too. Uh, Jonah Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Nineveh will be overturned. Well, if you've read Jonah, you know that in 40 days, Nineveh is not destroyed. Now, when we work through that and we try to figure it out, we look at the Hebrew word and we say, well, he said overturned. And so uh, the grace of God came in and overturned the city. But, but I think it really is it's simpler than that. Our God gives a conditional prophecy. Here is what's coming. Turn from your sins. Our God gives unconditional prophecy. Those of you studying the Westminster Confession, you probably read the chapter on God's eternal decrees. And so those are, those are God's prophecies that, that are as if they're set in stone. It's, it's the same when the Word of God says, let there be light. It's not let there be light if we believe there's going to be light. It's let there be light, and it happens. And so what happens with Joel is God says, here's what's coming. Tell the people here's what's coming. Tell the people why it's coming. For I long, I long to rescue. I long to restore. And so that's what we see in these first couple of chapters. You can probably divide the book into two, two parts. Uh, the first is a lament uh, they see this locust plague coming. It comes in four stages. Uh, that that kind of corresponds to the four life stages of the locust. Uh, the plague comes in verse in, in chapter one, and it's it's kind of almost uh, humorous. In verse five, uh, as people are complaining about wine, like we can't even have wine because the locusts have come. Verse fifteen of chapter one: Alas for the day! The day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Chapter two: The day of the Lord is coming; it's near. Chapter two, verse three: Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Verse eleven: The Lord utters His voice before his army. Right? He describes the locusts. They're his army. They're under his control. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executed his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? As I was reading through this, I thought about uh, General Sherman and his Savannah campaign. 
He is credited as creating a type of warfare that we would call scorched earth or total war. What did he do? Behind him, he left nothing. He didn't just take out military targets. He left nothing. So there would be no way to mount an offensive behind him. But I don't think he was the one that started it. Reports say that Genghis Khan, when he would go through, he would destroy in such a way that to make sure no survivors were left, he'd send a band back about a week later to the cities he'd overrun just in case someone was out in the woods somewhere, someone had hidden just in case, to make sure annihilation was complete. And that is the picture of the locust plague. Think about how vivid that is. He, he says, before them is the Garden of Eden. Right? And, and, and for every Christian, that, that, that creates this beautiful vision. Uh, if you're not a Christian, it, it's this beautiful picture of man and woman together in perfect knowledge of one another and of God and there being no sin and everything being absolutely the best. Kind of like the Delorier's backyard, <laughs> if you've been there. I, my wife can't go because she'll be envious, but this beautiful picture that's what he says. That, that's before you. But then what is behind you? Waste and devastation. And in our liturgy this morning, we have kind of recounted that, haven't we? There's been a, a call that we would, would enter into relationship and worship with this living God and, and a beautiful picture before us of what, what awaits the people of God. There's been an invite even from Joel and from Psalm 51 to, to take that, what, what we do at Lent, right? To take even, even a pause in our service of worship together and before a holy and loving God say, here's the wasteland that I've left behind me. Here's the wasteland I see. You may be one of those people that they, they look at the world and they're just like, I've, I, 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 it's going to get worse. I, 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 it's, I just can't see any way out of it. And maybe it's your own life. You long for the days when things were like the Garden of Eden. And now before you, it just seems a picture of wasteland. So God tells Joel, this is what's happening. It's by my hand. It's because my people have wandered away. I've sent prophet after prophet. They've even had examples go before them. And they've wandered away and they've served other gods. That's why this is happening. And I want to tell you that because it's not for us then to look at the, the, the devastation in a person's life and immediately make that jump. Here's why we know it's not like that. We also have the book of Job in the Old Testament. Don't we? We have, we have the book of Job in the Old Testament. And who suffered more than Job? A righteous man. A righteous man that God boasted over to Satan. Have you seen him? Can't touch him, right? So it's not for us to take this and say, oh, according to the prophet Joel, your, your business is struggling because you've done this, right? It's, that, that's not how we interpret the scriptures. We, we, we take it in its context, and then we take it to ourselves. How are we like the people of Joel's time? The one other thing I want to point out before we finally get to our scripture reading is uh, Joel is interesting in it has the most percentage of imperatives. So all us grammar geeks, it's just an interesting thing. It has more imperatives uh, per word count uh, 
than any other book in the Bible. Now, when we say imperatives, I'm sure that uh, Blake has explained it to you, but the gospel, it's always full of indicatives, isn't it? It's you are this, I am this, you are this, uh, this but you're my children, you're this, 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 and then the imperatives come, right? Uh, I, I'm going to be a father to you, so confess your sins. I love you with an abundant love, an everlasting love, so follow me. And, and Joel, even the short text that we read will say, I will, I will, and you will. It, it gives us a response to what we do. So, um, just one little bit more of, of uh, context. We, we read in our assurance, chapter 2, 12 to 14, yet even now, so you get in that sense, yet even now, that it is a conditional prophecy that our God is saying, take notice of what is going on. There is still time. Uh, and then in verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land. It's a beautiful thing that our God is jealous for his people and for his land. The Lord became jealous. He had pity on his people. The Lord answered and he said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make a reproach of you among the nations. We'll pick up with the scripture this morning in chapter 2, uh, verses 27 to 32. Uh, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I know in your bulletins it starts at 28. Let me just give you 27. Here's God saying, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever and this is the word of God. You may be seated. What a beautiful simple picture we get. A garden turned into a wasteland. What a beautiful picture that we have where we stand in God's redemptive history. That we can hope that the wasteland is going to return to a garden. Now you know when we talk about these uh, periods of God's interaction with creation, we have those four things, right? You've heard it, creation, fall, redemption. And, and do you say restoration here? Is that what you say? You say it all. I like consummation better because restoration kind of sounds like making Israel great again. And so, uh, consummation is better than restoration. It's actually better than it was. And so, we have these periods that are promised to us in God's Word. And so, um, for us, as we deal with either side of this, um, especially as we deal with that, that feeling of waste 
that feeling of loss. I'm not sure what you're doing for Lent. Uh, I first heard about it when I was a little boy growing up in Mississippi. We had three churches in our, in our little city in Edwards, Mississippi. Right? We had the Baptists, the Methodists, and the ones who did it right. We had the Presbyterians, right? I, I'd never seen a Catholic or an Anglican. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and yet I didn't know any of that stuff. I remember the first time I saw someone with ash on their forehead, I'm like, I wonder if anyone's told them. <laughs> and yet, as I've gotten older, I've really grown to appreciate this church calendar. So you take 40 days. But when I first heard of it, it was, what are you going to do without Right? It was just, it was, you're, you're going you're gonna to afflict yourself. You're going to do without something. And as you approach it and as you're going through it these next 40 days, I, I, I assure you that there is great value and worth in self-denial. But as you go through it, as you have those times in the desert or in your prayer closet or up in the mountains somewhere, what, whatever you're doing, I, I want you to have this picture in your mind. If God the Holy Spirit, in this season, as I draw near to Him, uh, and, and you got to know, it's just different than when you draw near to, to a friend, because even your best friend, you still want them to think you're worthy of their friendship, right? You still want them to think that they're getting a good deal out of this relationship. In Lent, when we move to Jesus, the friend of sinners, what He loves is to cleanse us. What he moves towards is the dirty, the broken, and the hurt. He moves towards them. It's like he seeks them out. And he invites us in this season to say, Lord, as the prophet Joel saw this, will you indeed show the barrenness of my soul? As I do without this, will you also open my heart to the things that, that I have held on to in place of you? The things, as C.S. Lewis would say, when, it, when it's like a kid playing in a mud puddle. I had a kid playing in a mud puddle, but he's offered a vacation at the beach. But he has no idea what the beach is. So he's content with the mud puddle. Let's consider that over these next four days. Lent is not to be measured primarily in what we give up. For what we give up is a wasteland, and we inherit a garden. God will pour out his spirit on you. Um, and so I want to just take and define a couple of these terms this morning. And then my plan is to kind of leave you where this text leaves you. Leave you where Acts chapter 2, when Peter quotes this text, to leave you where he leaves those hearers on the day of Pentecost. Um, first, the day of the Lord. All right, so you, you heard it. You heard it last week. The day of the Lord is also in Obadiah. It's all throughout the scriptures. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That movie scared me into loving Jesus more. The day of the Lord, what will it bring? Fire and locust, and storm and clouds. Has the day of the Lord already happened? In Matthew 24 to 26, Jesus talks about that dreadful, awful day. And, and, and he speaks of two days. All right, I, I believe one of the days he's speaking about is, is the immediate destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, but about that day, no one's to know. 
right? The day of his return. And yet the day of the Lord comes over and over and over throughout the scriptures. What happens in the various days of the Lord is God pours out his spirit in some such way so that the people of God are drawn into better and right and true worship of God. The day of the Lord, it results through in the New Testament for idols being thrown into the Kidron Valley, for things being burned and torn down for a wholehearted return. When the day of the Lord comes in Malachi, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and strike their land with utter destruction. In our text, chapter 3, 14, it's the day of decision. The day of the Lord brings with it both blessing and curse. Okay, the day of the Lord brings for those who love and long for our Savior's return, it brings us blessing. For those who have turned their hearts and backs on the Lord Jesus Christ, it brings curses. The day of the Lord here, he says, is going to be dreadful and awful, but then it's also going to be wonderful. And so uh, it, it's wonderful that Scripture does this. Scripture gives us, in Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of this prophecy. It, 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 it's Peter saying, what's happening amongst you? It's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. It's wonderful. But it meant something to the people in Joel's time, too. And just as... Every prophecy in Scripture, it may be another 700 years away for us. It means something for us today. We live then between these days. Often in my prayers, it's, Lord, help me live this day in light of that day. The day of the Lord will come. Um, so we live between these days. What's promised then, secondly, is that God will pour out His Spirit. Now, there's an interesting pouring of God's Spirit. Uh, it's, it seems to be a little different in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but uh, in Numbers chapter 11, there's really this interesting thing that happens, okay? Uh, Moses is leading all these people in the wilderness. They've been rescued from slavery, and they're on their way to the promised land, right? We've sung about that. On Canaan's shore, take me safe to the other side, right? There's so much imagery, like as a people of God, as an individual Christian, from slavery to the promised land. And Moses is leading all these people, and his, his uh, father-in-law Jethro comes, and he, and he does what a father-in-law does. He looks the way his son-in-law son works and he makes corrections. <laughs> He's an uh, industrial systems engineer, and he figures a better way, Moses, for you to lead these people. Right? No, it's out of care. What does he say? Moses, uh, this, would you do this every day? Like from morning to evening, you're just hearing the people? Right? And so uh, then Presbyterianism was born. Right? Presbyterianism started in Numbers chapter 11. It was God's gift to the church. He said, appoint 70 elders. You might remember that story. Moses appoints 70 elders, and I will take, this is what's interesting, I will take my spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them. And you may not remember this story, but, but, but that happens. But then there's two guys that don't make it for the meeting, right? Their, their chariot race was, uh, it was, it was going into overtime, and they missed the session meeting. All right, and, and, and so they don't, they don't make it. There's two guys that don't make it. And, and their names were um, Eldad and Medad. Forever in the history of the church, the two late elders. 
But here's what happened. Joshua says, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua's concerned. Moses, these two guys, they didn't even show up for the meeting. They don't even know what they're doing, and they're prophesying in the camp. All right? So God would send his spirit in a way in the Old Testament, like he did with Joel, to confirm these are my servants. They are speaking my word. And Joshua, of course, being a great number two guy, is like, Moses, you better watch these two. They didn't get instructions for you, and they're prophesying. And, but here's what Moses says. I love it. He says, are you envious for my sake? Would that all of God's people would be prophets and that he would put his spirit upon them. You know what that is? That's a prayer from Moses. Oh, Joshua, don't be envious for my sake. I don't need this power. It's not for me to have alone it wearies, it burdens, and praise, praise be that God has poured his spirit that he gave to me on these 70 elders. So you see in the Old Testament, often the, that the spirit is given for specific purposes. Uh, people are equipped to do great and awesome works. Uh, Samson, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he's able to do these amazing things. But what Moses is pointing to and what Joel is pointing to is not a sprinkling. It's not Moses' spirit. It is a pouring. All right? It was great to watch those kids this morning. All right? I don't know which deacon was responsible for the ice water, but uh, <laughs> bring it up at the next meeting. Um, but but we, we, we sprinkle it as a, as a sign. Uh, the blood was sprinkled and things were declared holy and made right and set apart. But here he says, it, the Spirit is, is actually going to be poured out. It's going to be such a fullness of the Spirit. It won't be just for some specific task. Yes, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament regenerated the hearts of the unbelievers. It was only by the power of the Holy Spirit that Abraham believed God and it was given to him as righteousness. But in the New Testament, the Spirit comes and it's poured upon all believers. So when you get to 2 Corinthians, it's like you're going to be my ambassadors. My message is through you. My Spirit is upon you. Go and preach and teach. And use Joel, Peter, to call people to, to, call people to conversion. And Jesus uh, tells his disciples in Matthew 3, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance. Uh, I'm sorry, it's John the Baptist. He who comes after me, he's talking about Jesus, is mightier than I. Uh, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, though, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Isn't that the same picture we get in Joel? Chaff, harvest, the day of the Lord. It brings forth wonder and awe and salvation for God's people. But he's promised to pour out his spirit. And we see that happen in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. We see that there are signs and wonders in heaven. Right? I will show you, he says, signs and wonders in heaven and earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. And, and now he's pointing to the crucifixion, isn't he? The crucifixion of Christ. What do we get? The, the temple is torn. The, the, the curtain is torn in two in the holy place from top to bottom. The earth is, there, there's earthquakes 
right? And rocks were split open. In Matthew uh, 27, 52, tombs were open. Bodies of the saints had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. Darkness. Luke reports the darkness. Luke 23, 44 is now the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What a blessing that we get to live after the day of Pentecost. What a blessing that we can look back and say, indeed, what was promised has come. Indeed, where we stand in God's redemptive history, we expect His Spirit to be poured out upon all believers. We expect to be uh, covered with this righteousness of Christ, and we expect to be equipped to share His gospel. But look at these last two verses. <laughs> Verse 31, the sun's moon, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, for the great and awesome day of the Lord. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then there's the picture of the garden. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. A day of rejoicing and a day of mourning. Yet to all who call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So Peter quotes it. He quotes the entirety of that text to get to that verse. Here's what's going on. People aren't drunk. Here's what's going on. God's prophecy is being fulfilled. And part of that prophecy is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In your contemplation, in your 40 days of afflicting yourselves from certain things so that you uh, might long and yearn for the Father more, you call out to the name of the Lord, for he longs to save. I don't know about for you, but for me sometimes there's that sense that his promises are so far off that it just seems to take so long. We feel we must wait and wait and wait and then wait some more for God to intervene. But faith in God is faith in what he promises. It's a trust in that he will do what he has promised. But it's a faith also that he is working out all things in his time. There are times when it seems that the wasteland has won. And you may be tempted, oh Christian, to think that. It's getting worse. Good thing we found this church. We're going to do everything we can to keep the bad people out. It's a good thing that I've got these friends. I'm going to circle myself around these friends because we all agree and we vote the same way. But that's not the response of a Christian. It's to say, I am God's ambassador. And there is a garden before us. There is a garden. Our God will turn our mourning into dancing. Our God will turn graves into gardens. Our God will turn a wasteland into Eden. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for where we get to stand in redemptive history. 
We might think it would have been amazing for those people to see this day of the Lord come and in the midst of destruction for them to turn and for you to relent and for you to provide for them grain and wine. And we might even be tempted to think if we saw that, we would trust you more. And yet, Father, we've seen so much more than these people. We know that the cost of the Spirit being poured out was that the temple would be torn, the, the, the curtain would be torn, that, Father, you would send, you would send your Son to pay for the sins of your people. That the destruction that, that should come to your people, if you were fair, came on your Son because you are gracious. So we pray, Father, that you would show us the wasteland, but always with an eye to the garden. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has yet to call upon your name for salvation, oh, Holy Spirit, would you quicken their heart? Would you, Holy Spirit, point out that what their hands hold on to, their own righteousness, be it for their own morality, their successes in business or life or family or their reputation. Oh, Father, would you show the wasteland it is to trust anyone but you? Would you prepare us for the sacrament? We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.